Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Thank you guys for joining us this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Luke chapter number 10. Luke chapter number 10. I didn't know Reader's Digest still exists, but apparently they do. And they tell you what a New Year's resolution is. A New Year's resolution is something that goes in one year and out the other. The drummer's already gone. He couldn't back me up. That's okay. I know all the research about New Year's resolutions. I know that in some sense, they are a lot like the lottery, pretty much a waste of time. But honestly, I can't help it. I'm a hopeless romantic when it comes to New Year's resolutions. I, I feel like I want to make all of the plans, all of the promises, and hope that next year is going to be better than this. So in the spirit of picking up a new habit this new year, uh, we're going to spend our time this morning talking about prayer. Pete Gregg is the founder of a prayer movement called the 24-7 Prayer Movement. It started out with his church in London and is now spread across the world. They have multiple churches across the world playing, praying 24 hours a day, seven days a week to see God's hand move. In his book, which was really helpful, How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People, he said that the whole idea of a 24-7 prayer movement stemmed out of two ideas. Idea number one, prayer is really important. Idea number two, him and his friends were really bad at prayer. And from that, just that sense of lack of that need, they said, man, we're gonna address this. And decades later now, people are praying around the world, reading his book and hearing the stories that God's done through prayer have been so encouraging. And so this morning, I kind of want to start with those same two foundations. Prayer is really important. Uh, And speaking for myself, I'm really bad at prayer. And so from there, uh, let's start the same place that Pete did and build in a direction where we see God move as we become obedient to what he called us to, and that's to pray. Specifically this morning, we're gonna be looking at the Lord's Prayer, uh, but we're gonna start a little bit earlier uh, in Luke chapter 10 instead of Luke chapter 11. If you're there, uh, we're gonna start in verse number 38. If you're using that blue Bible, it's page 1033, 1033 in that blue Bible in front of you. I'm gonna read one of my favorite stories leading into what Jesus says about prayer. Verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Let's pray this morning. God, as we jump into the story, and then as we uh, look into your instructions for prayer, I pray that you would create a hunger in our hearts. 
not to, not to know more, not, not to learn something new this morning, Lord, but a hunger for you, a hunger to know you, a hunger to commune with you, to abide with you. That Lord, this church, the Christians in the Bay Area, Christians around the world would be defined by prayer. That prayer would be the transforming force that transforms us from the inside out. To be people, Lord, who aren't white knuckling themselves to love you and to love others, but that because we're spending time with you, that your work would be complete in us. That we'd be your people, genuinely loving you, genuinely loving others. Praisings in your name, amen. If you're taking notes this morning, the first thing that I wanna talk about is why you should pray. Why you should, why you should pray. I love the story of Mary and Martha. Martha's frenzied pace, just the running around back and forth, convincing herself that she was mission critical to having Jesus over her house and she had to do all of the things. Martha is my kind of a girl. I think if she was in school today, she would be diagnosed with ADHD and they'd put her on a pill and they'd say, hey, you need help concentrating because she's just driven. I, I need to do something. Martha's frenzied pace was busy about doing mostly good things. Like we are busy doing mostly good things. But in that frenzied pace, two things happened. She was far from Jesus. And right below the surface, there was this sense of frustration and anger that permeated her life. And I think it had to do with just that drive, that, that frenziness that she felt inside of her. Martha is somebody that I resonate with. But when Martha brings her frustration to Jesus, uh, I love how Jesus doesn't mince words. He's not even like a good counselor, right? For a good counselor, you would expect that, hey, Mary, Martha, you guys are having a conflict. The truth is gonna be somewhere in the middle, but that's not at all what Jesus does. Jesus comes and goes, uh, no, Martha, you're doing it all wrong. And in fact, not only are you doing it all wrong, but the sister that you probably have a little bit of rivalry with, she's doing it all right. The one thing that's necessary, she's doing it, you're not, and I'm not going to take that away from her. Jesus calls it like it is. One thing is necessary. Jesus is telling Martha, Martha, I know that you think that you need to balance your productivity with your prayer, but it's not a balancing act. If you have to choose between productivity and prayer, the choice is simple, choose prayer. Choose being with Jesus. Why do we pray? Because one thing is necessary. I love that right after this story, I don't think it's an accident, Luke takes this portion of scripture that deals specifically with prayer and smacks it right up against the story of Mary and Martha. And I think the reason that Luke does this is because he's writing to an audience that doesn't have Jesus where they can physically go and sit under the feet of Jesus, under the teaching of Jesus. And so in order to make this story relevant for his audience, he says, hey, 
You don't get to be like Martha, change your plans and go sit under Jesus, but I can teach you a way that you can be with Jesus, prayer. And so if you're taking notes this morning, why we pray, the first point, prayer is how we sit with Jesus. Jesus isn't here. You can't fly to Jerusalem to go hang out with a rabbi, but there is a way that we can commune with Jesus. There is a way that we can abide with him. And that's prayer. Prayer is how we sit with Jesus. And maybe more importantly, prayer is how we find peace. Martha had that anger and that frustration right underneath the surface. And what Jesus extends to her is an invitation. You don't need to carry all of that. Just come, sit with me, be with me, and my peace I will give to you. In fact, when Paul writes, he makes that uh, connection between prayer and peace crystal clear. Famous verses you guys all know in Philippians chapter four. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And then the promise that follows it in verse number seven, that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer is how we find peace. It reminds me of the old song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. The song asks, are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. It, so what the Bible does is it ties peace directly to prayer. But I don't think it's just peace. I think all of the good gifts that God gives to us for many of them, they tie back to prayer. The way that we experience what Jesus has to offer is by being people of prayer. So lastly, why we should pray, pray prayer, excuse me, is how we experience life as God intended. St. John Chrysostom, uh, the fourth century Archbishop of Constantinople says that this way, it is simply impossible not unlikely, impossible, to lead a life. Once I find it, I'll finish the quote. <laughs> it is simply impossible to lead without the aid of prayer, a virtuous life. You can't do it. You can't lead the life that God intended for you apart from prayer. Uh, John uses the phrase there, a virtuous life. Uh, I think of that as the life that God intended. The abundant life that he promises in John 10, 10. Not only the abundant life, but the easy yoke, the, the, the burden that's not gonna weigh us down that he offers to all who are weary in Matthew 11. Everlasting life that he promised to Nicodemus in John chapter number three, which speaks not only about the duration of our life, but also the quality of our life. These things that God has promised to us, I don't think that they are possible apart from a commitment to prayer. The reason we pray, the reason that we pray is because prayer is how we experience life as God intended. And that is what I want this year. I, I want life the way that Jesus wanted his followers to expect, experience it. it. It's true, I will admit to you, uh, I would benefit from watching my diet a little bit more this year. 
eating a little bit more kale, making sure I get breakfast instead of just chugging cups of coffee, just like not going out to fast food as much, that would benefit me. I would benefit from a gym membership or maybe not even a gym membership. I just need to get outside more, right? Just go on a run, go on a walk. Those things would benefit me. But from everything that I know about life, the thing that we have to take care of first is our soul. Here's how Paul says it. Paul says, absolutely, in 1 Timothy chapter four, physical training is of some value. He's not negating that. Six packs, they look good on you. But godliness has a value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the things to come. Brendan Manning has this quote that I love. He says, would to God that I have served my God with half the zeal that I watched my waistline. Maybe that's especially true for Californians or maybe that's a whole America thing, I don't know. But man, Paul says, yes, it's valuable to make sure your physical body is taken care of, but godliness is supremely more valuable. Or Jesus says it this way, says it to the rich man who retired early, who hit all his financial goals, was just about to take it easy. He comes and he says, he asks this question, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but forfeit his soul? Uh, the French novelist, Leon Bloy says it this way. The only real sadness, the only real failure, the only great tragedy in life is to not become a saint. Man, we might suffer a little bit if we don't hit our financial goals. We might, we might have a little bit more difficult of a time like looking at ourselves in the mirror if we don't hit our physical goals. We might look at retirement a little bit differently and think like, ah, oh, man, like I'm under the stress of all the financial pressure of living in the Bay Area. It's so expensive here. But that's not a great failure. That's, that, that, that's not something that you're gonna take to the grave and think, ah, oh, man, if I would only would have X, Y, or Z. But I love that he says the only great failure, the only real sadness, the great tragedy in life is to not be a saint, to not be who God intended you to be, to not live the life that he intended, to not take him up on his promises and realize that this life that he's given us is life to the full, it's the abundant life. He came to give us life and give us life to the full. And the great tragedy is that so many of us miss out on that promise, that we don't live life as saints. So because we want Jesus, because we want his peace, we want life as he intended, we pray. Luke continues right after talking about Mary and Martha with this, uh, with this story. Back in the Bible, chapter 11, we're gonna read from verse one down to verse four. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us lead us not into, into temptation. And in 36 words, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. 
simple, profound, here it is. The masterclass on prayer from Jesus all crammed in to 36 words. The first three aren't even technically part of the Lord's prayer, but I think they're so important for me and I think they're important for us this morning. Point two on your notes there, when you pray. When Jesus starts out his teaching on prayer, how he starts it off is when you pray. And I know for me, that's the most important part, having a clear answer to the question, when you pray. Charles Duhigg, a couple years ago, has a book called The Power of Habit. And in the book, he talks about anything that you can do to like front load the planning for your habit to succeed is gonna help you in sustaining a habit. He says, if you're planning on going to the gym in the morning before you go to bed at night, pack up your gym bag, have it ready to go. And that little bit of extra work on the front end will help you to see this habit through into the tail end. Just the little things. When are you gonna do this? When you pray. For Jesus, talking to his disciples, they would have had a clear answer to the question, when you pray. For Jews, they prayed three times a day, morning prayer, midday prayer, and evening prayer. As you read through the book of Acts, you're thinking, how does this ragtag movement of people who are separating from Judaism, joining this followers of Jesus, how in the world are they getting together to figure out like the next steps for this movement? because they too followed the Jesus rhythm of prayer. In Acts, when John and Peter were going up to the temple, they were going up to pray. And multiple times through the book of Acts, you see that early disciples following the Jewish rhythm of praying in the morning, praying at midday, praying in the evening. This tradition dates all the way back to early on in Judaism. It's probably most clearly seen in Daniel. In Daniel chapter six, here's what it tells us about Daniel. That when Daniel knew the document had been signed, that, that little document says, hey, if you pray to anybody else, we're gonna kill you. Um, that document. He went up into his house where he had windows in the upper chamber opened towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees and three times a day, he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel, just like the Jews before him and after him, prayed three times a day, morning, midday, evening. Jesus probably would have followed the same rhythm as prayer as well. But to that, he spiced it up. We see him spending all night in prayer. In Mark chapter number one, we see him rising up early, a great while before dawn, going off into a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus prayed not only three times a day, but also when there were special needs in his life. And so the question again is, when do you pray? Suzanne Wesley was a mother of 10 children. 10. Besides her 10 children that survived, there was also nine that didn't make it uh, past pregnancy. And so I don't even know how one woman's body is able to handle all of that. But Suzanne Wesley was, was superwoman of superwomen. Uh, not only did she have 10 kids that she raised, she was also married to less than a stellar husband. For years of their marriage, he was off in jail for mishandling the church funds that he was in charge of. And still with 10 kids in her house, uh, Suzanne Wesley homeschooled her 10 kids, teaching them little things like Latin and Greek and all of the, all of the things that they needed in order to later on change the world. 
You, you know, we know Suzanne Wesley best by her two famous children, John and Charles Wesley. John and Charles Wesley were the two brothers who started Methodism. Methodism brought a revival to the church in the West and went and spread missionaries around the world. I spent nine months after high school in Fiji and in Fiji, uh, it's officially a Christian nation. And when you trace the history of Fiji back it's because Methodist missionaries from the movement that Charles and John Wesley started spread across the world to the furthest places from Jerusalem, bringing the gospel. Suzanne Wesley, in this, uh, in this unbelievably difficult time, raising 10 kids, homeschooling them six hours a day, and then taking a time, one, that she would line up her kids, one of them would have extra time on Monday, the next would have extra time on Tuesday. The planning and, and, and the brilliance of this woman, I don't understand it. But Suzanne Wesley, in the middle of her day, would take her apron, would throw it over her head. And her kids would know, mom's praying. Don't mess with mom when her apron's over her head. Cause that's when Suzanne Wesley prayed. I don't think, I don't think it's coincidence that a mother of 10 kids homeschooling them six hours each still had the ability to raise kids that changed the world. I don't think it's coincidence. I think it's because Suzanne Wesley had an answer to the question, when do you pray? With that, we come to the last part of our sermon this morning. The question, or the question how to pray. Again, Jesus takes 36 words. In the model prayer that he gives, a lot of theologians say this shouldn't be called the Lord's prayer. This should be called the disciples prayer because it's the example that Jesus gives to his disciples and says, this is how you are supposed to pray. And so with that, Jesus condenses a lot into a few words. And most people, when they look at the Lord's prayer, they don't think that it simply should be recited but just as a challenge to, to kind of our brand of church, man, we should know the Lord's prayer. I remember, uh, I remember holding a vigil on the football field. When I was a pastor down in Southern California, one of the football players was hurt. And so a bunch of people from the community came and gathered around. We circled up around center field there on the school's football turf. And uh, somebody said, hey, let's pray. Uh, and let's pray the Lord's prayer. At this point, I had graduated from uh, Bible college. I was like a year or so into my ministry as the associate pastor of First Baptist Church of Boron. And they said, all right, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I was like, okay, I know this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I was like, your, 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 your kingdom. And I remember stuttering through the Lord's prayer, thinking, how do I not know this? How did I get through Bible college and not have the Lord's prayer memorized? And so, yes, the Lord's Prayer is not simply for us to recite, but for many of us, it's a good starting point. And it's 36 words in Luke's version. In Matthew's version, which is the more popular one, it's a little bit longer, but not that much longer. We can handle the Lord's Prayer. But in it, as we look at it, there are six points that I wanna make as we walk through the Lord's Prayer together. First, Father, hallowed be your name. We're gonna run through this. We're gonna just pop through this in the hope that if there's somebody in here, you say, Charles, 
I want to pray. I feel a need to pray. But what does that mean? Like, do I sit down and do I sit down and just like be silent before God? Well, I'm, that's a good starting point. But there can add on to that praying the things that Jesus teaches us to pray. We take each of these sentences and we use them as just uh, ways to start our prayers, to pray along this line. Father, hallowed be your name. <clears throat> We're so used to the idea of God the Father that we really don't realize how revolutionary this is. Jesus probably used the term Abba, just the, the Aramaic just daddy of his time to talk to God. When Paul's talking about this term Abba, he said, we didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption of sons to whom we cry, Abba, Father. Here's the amazing thing. When Jesus introduces this term Father, it is not in line with the Old Testament way of understanding God up to this point. Here's what I mean by that. In the Old Testament, there's 15 times when God is referred to as the Father. Jesus shows up on the scene. In the Gospels, there's 165 plus times when Jesus refers to God as our Father. Jesus brings this idea of nearness, closeness, and he says, here's how you want to relate to God, Father in heaven. There are many, uh, there's so many things that we can take away from God being our Father. But first and foremost, it's like God loves us. The, the, the bedrock reason that many of us don't pray is because we don't understand God's love for us. If we had a glimpse into how much God loves us, man, we would go to him with everything. We'd go to him for everything. And so when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he starts off with Father. Father, hallowed be your name. Respect is a dying idea in our day. It might be the 60s and all of the, all of the, I wasn't alive in the 60s, so I don't know how to describe like the, the ethos of that day. Or maybe it was like the, like the grunge rock of the 90s and we can blame it on Nirvana and all of like the rage against the machine and the, just like the anti-authoritarian uh, attitude that was swept up between the 60s and the 90s. But this idea of hollowing isn't something that is common in our day. I remember one time when I realized uh, respect and, and how it affects us was on a family vacation. Uh, my brother had just served a term uh, in Iraq as an army infantryman uh, and he was training or he was applying to be in the army special forces. And so he's committed, he's, he's Captain America, he's army as army gets. And he's wearing a hat with the American flag on it. And he's holding one of the nieces or nephews. I don't forget, I forget which one it was. And the, the little baby smacks off the hat and it lands flag down onto the ground. And so Gabe's holding a baby, looks over at little sister Nikki and says, hey, Nikki, could you pick up my hat? Nikki looks at to him because she's a little sister, goes, pick up your own stinking hat. And Nikki goes, or Gabe goes, Nikki, pick up the hat. And at this point, everybody else watching realizes that, oh, this isn't about the hat. This is about the flag. Gabe's frustrated because the flag is face down on the ground. And this is something that he's dedicated his life to. And so Gabe looks at Nikki, which is that like the fire and like anger that only a brother can give to a sister. And she's like, Ugh, grabs the hat, puts it on and walks off. 
And for a lot of us, we understand like what it is to respect the American flag, to respect certain traditions, to respect family members and elders. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he says, no, no, you hollow, you set apart as holy God's name. We remember who we're talking to. The Homer household is pretty much constantly a riot. But one of the things that, one of the places that uh, the craziness is not allowed into is when we sit down for a family and pray. One of the kids is gonna stay and say, okay, let's pray. And at that point, Charles becomes a disciplinarian. We're not messing around anymore right now because we're talking to God. Father, hallowed be your name. One of the ways we can hallow God's name or, or bring this idea of God's holiness and his separation into our hearts is by just knowing the Bible, knowing what it is that God's done for us. We hallow God's name because he's the creator, because he's the one that chose Abraham out and said, Abraham, through you are all of the nations gonna be blessed. We hallow God's name because God brought deliverance to the Israelites out of Egypt. We hallow God's name because he spoke to Samuel, because he led David and brought him onto the throne. We hallow God's name because a son was promised, because Jesus showed up, because Jesus died for our sins. As we walk through the redemptive stories of scripture and we rehearse and we, we remind ourselves of what God's done for us, we hallow God's name. Father, hallowed be your name. Muzan, your kingdom come. The kingdom of God is an important but often misunderstood concept. John Piper simply defines the kingdom as God's reign, R-E-I-G-N, not R-A-I-N. Where God is king, his kingdom has come. So God's kingdom has to do with at least two things. His people that have pledged their allegiance to him. If you're here and you've pledged your allegiance to Jesus, you've believed in him, you've placed your faith in him, then you are got part of God's people and you are part of God's kingdom. Not only is it about his people, but it's also about his priorities. His priority, the greatest of which is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we say we wanna see your kingdom come, your will be done, it means, God, we, we wanna see more people join into your kingdom. We wanna see your priorities spread throughout the earth. We wanna see your, your priority of people loving God and loving others be the, the natural tendency of our world. This is no trite matter. Jesus asks us to pray for the total upheaval of our world that lives in opposition to God. A couple of quotes for you. Karl Barth, who's a Swiss, Swiss theologian who is part of the confessing church in Germany that resisted the Nazi influence into the churches. Here's what he said about prayer. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Or Billy Graham said it this way. To get nations back on their feet, we must first get down on our knees. Both of, these, both of these people realize that when we pray, we are praying for God to come and take all of the hurt, all of the broken, all of the untrue things in the world and to bring restoration, bring the kingdom of God back again. Anywhere where we see a lack of God's love, joy, peace, we pray that God's kingdom, his rule and his reign would take back over. His kingdom come, his will be done, like it says in Matthew. And then he says, give us each day our daily bread. Ask simply for what you need. 
We'll never run out of things to pray when we realize the offer that God has for us. I need help with my family. God, I'm gonna pray for that. I need help with my finances. I need help with my unruly children. I need help with all of the responsibilities that I have at work. When we realize that the offer is that we can pray for anything that we need, man, we'll come to God naturally. But notice that it says, give us each day our daily bread. The prayer is plural. As much as you have an infinite amount of requests, when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, it's not just about what you need. There's an us, there's a corporateness here that we're praying for each other. In fact, all of the Lord's prayer is not singular, it's plural. Our Father in heaven, give us today our daily bread. There's plurality that runs throughout the Lord's prayer. James says it this way, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly, simply to spend it on your own passions. And so we pray, give us our daily bread. And then we pray, forgive us our sins. In order for prayer to be successful, we have to take confession seriously. In Proverbs, it says that, or excuse me, in Psalms, it says it this way. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Or in Isaiah 59, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated between you, separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For many of us, the reason that it seems like there's a ceiling above our prayers is because we, we want a little bit of God, but we still want to hold on to this habit. We want a little bit of God, but we still want to hold on to this attitude. We want a little bit of God, but we're not going to change this area of our life. And so Jesus teaches us, pray this way. Father, forgive us our sins. It doesn't need to be a grueling experience. Man, confession of sins is a joyful thing. When David was confessing the sin of him, uh, the sin of him, Bathsheba and Uriah, here's what he says. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. He said, God, the reason I'm coming to you for confession is because I know that there's joy there. I know that confession isn't just a misery that you want me to walk through. There's a joy that's coming. There's a promise that comes in 1 John that if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, there's joy and there's promises with, the forgive, with asking for forgiveness that we know when we ask for forgiveness, God promises, I'm faithful, I'm just. I, I will bring you that forgiveness that you asked for. As we move on, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. This is a part of the Lord's prayer that gets a little bit tricky. And in fact, in Matthew, uh, it, gets, it gets frustratingly specific. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter six. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive, the trespass, forgive your trespasses, excuse me. 
And honestly, I don't know exactly how this works or why Jesus made such a clear statement about this. But the Bible makes it very clear that there's a participation that goes on in prayer. That if you're coming to make an offering and you realize that you have something against your brother, leave your offering there. Don't go before God. Go make things right with your brother. Bring that forgiveness and then come back and offer your offering to God. That, that simply asking for forgiveness without extending forgiveness makes a show out of religion. And it's not real. Jesus says, you're going to forgive as well as ask for forgiveness. And there's such a beauty in extending forgiveness. Ruby Bridges uh, was a six-year-old who was volunteered by her parents to be the one African-American child in an all-white school in Louisiana. Going to school, she was escorted by 25 uh, federal agents to make sure that she could get through to the entrance of the school without being harmed. Ruby Bridges uh, would walk in past protesters screaming death threats on her. One protester would every day she walks into school hold up a coffin with a little black child inside of the coffin to make sure Ruby Bridges knew you're not welcome here. There was only one teacher who was willing to teach an African-American child. All of the other white students pulled them out pulled, their parents pulled them out of school. So she was the one student in the entire school. She was assigned a counselor in order just to help her process through this dramatic experience. And one time this counselor who is sitting in her home, going through the weekly counseling session with her brothers and sisters around her there in her modest home, parents who don't even know how to read and write said, Ruby, I saw you were talking to the protesters when you're coming in. What were you saying? He goes, oh, I wasn't talking to them. He said, well, well, what were you saying? He's like, oh, I was praying. Praying? Ruby, why were you praying as you were walking into school? I pray for them every day that I walk into school. Ruby, what were you praying for? (laughs) Oh, I always say the same thing. Please, God, try to forgive these people. Because even if they say those bad things, they don't know what they're doing. Holy cow, a six-year-old bringing that level of forgiveness into the world? That's why we pray, because we're reminded, man, the kingdom that we wanna see come is a kingdom of love and forgiveness and peace that spreads from us around the world. And so we pray, Father, yes, forgive us, but forgive me so that I can extend forgiveness around us because that's the world that Jesus came to bring. That's the life that he wants for us. Forgive us as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Lastly, lead us not into temptation. Ephesians chapter six makes it clear that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. That our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Peter would add to this in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You might just think it's a bad habit you can't kick. You just might think that you're not able to disassociate from those bad friends. You might just think that you're in a funk right now that I don't know how to get out of. But what if there's a spiritual component to that? 
What if what Jesus says about spiritual realities is real? That we need his help to not only, neg- not only navigate the things that we understand, but also the spiritual realm that we don't really understand. And so we come to him, God, lead me not into temptation. Protect me from this, the, this spiritual wickedness in the world that is around me. And in 36 words, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. I'm almost done. Can I tell you guys two stories and then we'll wrap up together? Is that okay? When I think about prayer, I think about George Mueller. George Mueller has this ridiculously compelling short book called George Mueller's Answers to Prayer. George Mueller, who was born on Friday, September 27th, 1805 and died the 10th of March in 1898, was the director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. As he started his orphanages, uh, they grew and grew until at the time of his death, he had cared for 10,024 orphans. Not only that, he started 117 schools across England that, that brought, let me get the number right, over 120,000 British students through a Christian curriculum. He was so successful with his orphanages and his Christian education that people accused Mueller of bringing the lower caste above where they should be. Where they should be. He, was, he was somebody who changed society. But here was George Mueller's reason for starting the orphanage. He wanted to show God's people that God would answer prayer. And so he made this commitment that he was going to do God's work without asking for a single dollar from anybody, but only relying on God in prayer. Probably the most famous story as you hear about George Mueller is him gathering the orphans together one morning when they were still in downtown uh, Bristol before they built their new facilities outside of town. He brings all the kids together, brings them into the kitchen and says, all right, guys, let's pray for breakfast. What the kids didn't know is that there's no food for breakfast because his uh, planning strategy was to only pray and to not ask anybody for food. What that meant was the kitchen was empty and nobody knew it except for the Lord. As they, pray for, as they pray for breakfast, there's a knock on the door. A baker comes in and says, uh, Mr. Mueller, the Lord woke me up at 3 a.m., told me I wasn't allowed to sleep anymore, but I had to break bread for the orphans this morning. Can, can I deliver breakfast? <laughs> and, George, and George Miller says, yes, uh, I was waiting for you. Come on in. <laughs> but then a second knock comes. The milkman, his milk cart broke down in front of the orphanage. And instead of letting the milk go to waste, the, the milkman comes up and says, I can't deliver this milk. Would the orphans need some milk this morning? He says, I was expecting you, <laughs> come on in. Furthermore, he's on a trip. He's crossing the Atlantic uh, on the SS Sardinian in August of 1877. The ship runs into thick fog, but Mr. Mueller grabs the captain and says, I have an appointment in Quebec. I need to get across by tomorrow afternoon. And the captain says, it's a thick fog. We can't go any, we can't go any faster. And so Mueller asks, is there any way I can go down to the map room and I could pray in the map room? And so the captain's like, all right, Christian guy, let's go pray in the map room. And so he goes down, 
brings the captain with him and they begin to pray. Mueller offers a short prayer that God would lift the fog so that they would be able to keep to their schedule and he'd be able to make the appointment. And after George, after Mueller's done praying, the captain begins to pray and George Mueller says, don't pray. Don't worry about it. Here's what he says. Captain, I have known my Lord, I have known my Lord for more than 50 years And there's not one instance that I have failed to have an audience with a king. Get up, captain, for you will find that the fog has gone. They go back up onto the deck and sure enough, the fog is lifted. They're able to sail across the Atlantic and he's able to keep his appointment the next morning. I don't think that they're lying. And honestly, I don't know if God wants for me uh, to, to start an orphanage and rely on him for prayer. I, I don't know if that's the case, but I know that God has something for me that will only come if I become a man of prayer. And I know that God has a life for every one of us here that will not, will not be experienced if we do not pray. And so the title of this message is, when do you pray? And so the... The answer that I want you to have is an answer between you and God is this year, 2023, when will you pray? It's not as complicated. It's not as scary as you think. You don't need to devote hours to it, but it does deserve your attention because there's so much more for us to experience than just simply going through the motions and not having a vital relationship with the one who created us and calls to us, abide in me, so that I can abide in you. When will you pray? Let's pray together. God, would you allow us to experience you as we commit ourselves to prayer? God, even right now, during this last song, would you just help us to crystallize and answer to that? When are we gonna pray? Lord, would you allow us to bring our attention, our focus, Lord, our energy into just doing our part. Lord, even as insignificant as it is to allow us to bring our weaknesses to you, our lack of ability to prayer to you, come to you and just say, Father, you take care of this. Would would we be a people that know you through prayer? Amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.